Hey, good morning. Go ahead and grab a seat. Thank you, Charlie. Appreciate that. Hope you're having a good morning. Um, we're going to be going through Psalm 34 today. So if you have a Bible, it's going to be helpful for you to flip it open this week. Um, we will put the passages up on the screen like we normally do. This is an easier one to walk through, I think, so this would be a good one to turn to. And we're finishing up our series on the book of Psalms. We're, obviously, we didn't do the whole book. We jumped in and we jumped out. This is our second volume of Psalms. And every 18 months or so, we'll probably do the same thing again, picking fresh five or six Psalms and then walk through them. I think eventually we'll get the whole book finished, which would be a pretty cool goal, I think. Um, but Thanksgiving is Thursday, so I've been saving this psalm for last because it is a psalm of thanksgiving, but kind of not, right? Not really thanksgiving for family and friends like we will on Thursday, but this is a psalm of thanksgiving that God was close and saves us while we are in the middle of affliction, while we're in the middle of pain and in trial. In fact, David, who is going to be our song writer today, our psalmist, he'll even say that the righteous have many afflictions. And you could probably jot down a quick list, right, with very little effort. The righteous have many afflictions. And this is, this is always counterintuitive, I think. If you just are honest for a moment, you'd think that a life devoted to Jesus would probably decrease the pain that we have, decrease the afflictions. And it's true that some pains and some trials, they do vanish whenever we find Christ because we're not living really by the folly of the world anymore. You stop playing stupid games, you stop winning stupid prizes, right? Some sufferings do go away. We actually looked in detail at this when we went through our series on suffering and how different kinds of sufferings interact with the Christian. But your life is exhibit A, that you can love Jesus and still get sick, still get cancer. Still lose friends, family, still have depression. You could love Jesus with every fiber of your being and still have anxieties that just overwhelm you. And I grew up in a stream of Christianity that taught implicitly, but it did teach that there was always a correlation between behavior and blessing. That you could actually contractually with God behave afflictions away. That if I performed my days and my weeks and my life in a certain way, then I probably wouldn't get sick. I wouldn't have anxieties. I wouldn't have issues. I would always have money in the bank. I'd always have friends. I'd always have a, a, at least a modicum of health. And I think this is probably how society at large views God. A little bit more karma than Christianity. But nonetheless, a contract we have with God, if I do, then you'll do. If I don't do, then I wouldn't expect you to do anything well for me. This is how Ted Turner looked at God. If you don't know who Ted Turner is, he is an entrepreneur, um, most powerful in the media space. He's the guy that started CNN, started TBS. Um, and he is known for a little bit of an edge against God and the people of God. Interestingly enough, he wanted to be a missionary when he was a child until he watched his little sister die slowly from a rare form of lupus. And this is one of the things after reflection that Ted Turner said. He said she was sick for five years before she passed away. And it just seems so unfair because she hadn't done anything wrong. What had she done wrong? And I couldn't get any answers. Christianity could, couldn't give me any answers to that. So my faith got shaken. There it is. Behavior 
blessing, right? That, that link that's just natural to us. And we all have a Ted Turner that sits on our shoulders, right? That's why when something horrible happens or a tragedy just appears, don't you, just for a split second in your mind, if not out your mouth, think to yourself, but I'm doing great right now. Like, I've been reading the Bible every day. Like, but I have been behaving. I can't believe this is happening now. That is how quick we could turn to a contractual relationship with the Lord. So what this psalm is going to do a really good job of is contend with how you and I interact with God when affliction comes. When affliction is at our doorstep. And what I love about this psalm is that the title, if you look at it in your Bible, gives us the song's influence. There was a moment that pushed this song onto paper, right? And it's not a story that you're going to ever find in your Jesus Storybook Bible, nor is it celebrated at any Thanksgiving anywhere in the history of all Thanksgivings, but I think it's perfect for us today. And the big question I'm going to carry to this passage and hopefully answer through this text is when affliction comes, do you enjoy and bless the Lord before or after he has rescued you? In other words, do you need a happy ending in order to be thankful? That's a tough question. I mean, many of us are going to get together on Thursday with friends and family. I mean, I am. And, and oftentimes when we think about how we're going to be thankful on Thanksgiving, we do so like we're sifting through the closet looking for something to wear, right? Always pushing by items of clothing that are not really all that exciting for that day, looking for the one that is exciting for that day. And that's the way Thanksgiving feels for so many people. That, that, that exercise of let's just all go around the room and, and give one or two things that we're thankful for this year. Do you not catch yourself having to kind of look around the elephants in the room before you could find some peace, some semblance of some moment that you're thankful for? I mean, isn't our Thanksgiving somewhat stained by the afflictions that we're having to wrestle with? So this is going to be a helpful passage in order to know Psalm 34 a little bit better, though, what I would like to do is go into 1 Samuel 21. This will be up on the screen. Don't feel so compelled to turn here. If you're already in Psalm 34, stay in Psalm 34. But this is the story that built this psalm, okay? And I'm going to start in verse 10. And this is David after he's been chased out um, of Jerusalem by King Saul. King Saul is looking to kill him. And he ends up in a place called Gath, which is full of his enemies. And it says this. And David rose and fled that day from Saul and went to Achish, the king of Gath. And the servants of Achish said to him, Is not this David the king of the land? Did, that, did not they sing to one another of him in dances? Saul has struck down his thousands and David his ten thousands. And David took those words to heart and was much afraid of Achish, the king of Gath. So he changed his behavior before them and pretended to be insane in their hands and made marks on the doors of the gate and let his spittle run down his beard. Then Achish said to his servants, behold, you see the man is mad. Why then have you brought him to me? Do I lack madmen that you have brought this fellow to behave as a madman in my presence? Shall this fellow come into my house? All right. Bold play here by David. Likely got David a bit of a nickname later on by the fellas because that's what fellas do, right? He's acting a little bit odd because he's under immense pressure right here. 
He has this reputation for battle that preceded him, made him go viral, and now it's a liability. And he overheard the whispers and knew, I'm about to be killed. Me and likely the men around me, so he literally pleads insanity. And then fortunately for you and for me, on this day, after he's processed the moment, he wrote a song for us, right? And this is where we're going to go. Psalm 34. This is him, and we don't know how long after this, obviously, that he wrote this psalm, but we do know that it is after that moment. Psalm, Psalm 34 of David when he changed his behavior before Abimelech, which is just another way of saying Achish, it's the same king, so that he drove him out and he went away. David says, I will bless the Lord at all times, just as Charlie was saying up here earlier. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul makes its boast in the Lord. Let the humble hear and be glad. Oh, magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt his name together. I sought the Lord and he answered me and delivered me from all my fears. Those who look to him are radiant and their faces shall never be ashamed. This poor man cried, and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all of his troubles. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and delivers them. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Oh, fear the Lord, you his saints. For those who fear him have no lack The young lions suffer want and hunger, but those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. Come, O children, listen to me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. What man is there who desires life and loves many days that he may say good? Keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. Turn away from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. The eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous and his ears toward their cry. The face of the Lord is against those who do evil to cut off the memory of them from the earth. And then the the next few verses are going to be pivotal for us today. When the righteous cry for help, the Lord hears and delivers them out of all their troubles. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. Many are the afflictions of the righteous. But the Lord delivers him out of them all. He keeps all his bones. Not one of them is broken. Affliction will slay the wicked, and those who hate the righteous will be condemned. The Lord redeems the life of his servants. None of those who take refuge in him will be condemned. Okay, it's a little bit longer. It's 22 verses. But the main idea is that we have an afflicted man that calls out to a very near and a very rescuing God, and then he leads his listeners and his friends to join him in thanksgiving. But what I love about this is the blessing out of David's mouth is not contingent on the rescue. It's not contingent. It doesn't hinge on it. He blesses the Lord at all times. All times. That's interesting to me. Listen, I've struggled with this passage, not for a couple weeks, but for a couple decades. (laughs) Because I want to bless the Lord. I love to thank God. I love to praise the Lord. I love to lift my hands. I love to sing to the Lord. I love to read his scripture back to him. I love to do this, but not all times. Not at all times. The truth is, whatever is filling our mouth when we are under big affliction That is a mirror to our deepest and truest theology. That really is how we see God. 
how we react, what, what comes out of our mouth, what comes out of our hearts when the pressure is really on us. I think had I been in this scene, I would have been very bitter. I mean, pressed from one king, my home, by a wicked man, after I did everything the Lord had asked me to do, and, and now I'm, I'm likely to be killed again with my friends, I think I would have been bitter. I think it would have been easy for me to say, but Lord, I've been doing this. I mean, you, you, you said jump, and I just said how high. I mean, I've been doing everything, and, and here I See how quick you get there? Behavior, blessing. Behavior, blessing. It's a contract we are all so easy to jump into. I think probably the quote of 2022 for us as a church has been a Tozer quote. A.W. Tozer says, the most important thing about you is what comes into your mind when you think about God. We've said that quote a million times, I feel like. I could add, especially under affliction. What's really important about you, maybe the most important thing about you, is what comes into your mind when you think about God, and I would say under heavy affliction. Because that's where we really know what we really think. You see, what afflictions do is they have a way of disorienting us. Imagine being blindfolded and spun around several times and having the blindfold pulled off. You find yourself dizzy and kind of unstable, and that's what troubles can do. They also have a way of decoupling me from being thankful, from worship, from lifting my arms to the Lord or even acknowledging that he's there. In fact, they, they do a lot of things. Afflictions, they'll tempt me to build my own refuge, to build my own shelter. Because, I mean, after all, if he's not here to take care of me, I better get really good at taking care of myself. I definitely can't risk myself on him anymore. i got to look out for number one. Afflictions tempt me to withhold my worship, to withhold my thanks, to just hold my breath until the storm clouds part, right? I mean, obviously, what would I be thanking him for? Nothing good is happening, I would say. Afflictions tempt me away from tasting and savoring the goodness of God. When, when this passage says, taste and see that the Lord is good, that's what it means for you and me to just enjoy God, to deeply enjoy, enjoy and have our affections grow for God. But how can I enjoy a God that lets me cook under afflictions? You see how easy it is to be tempted away from this. Afflictions bring out that contract negotiator in all of us. Blessing behavior. You know what's interesting about the passage that begot our psalm, I guess you could say, is David experienced enough danger that the only way he felt like he was going to get himself and team David out of that moment was to act as if he had a mental disability. That was the only way he could see coming out of that alive. And, and, and maybe you caught this, he did this out of nowhere. Right? He didn't know what trouble he was stepping into. He was fine one moment. Walks in with his guys, probably like Russell Crowe in Gladiator, just kind of struts in. They sing songs about this guy. He is viral. He has a reputation. He has a team around him. It's all very impressive. And then he pivots to a man who can't even control his basic functions. And he does so so convincingly that they buy it. They buy it. They saw him walk in. I think at that point, I would imagine in that room, them going, all right, we know you're not crazy. Fella, get off the floor, you know. We saw you come in. We know your reputation. But that's not what happened. He went that far that they were like, yo, he's got problems. Why, why are we even having, why is he even here? Let's get him out of here. That's what's happening. He's drooling on himself, babbling, marking up the furniture. This is what it took for him to survive. 
Hey, fun fact, when we're in danger, we don't act normal, do we? We don't. We don't. Our brains and our bodies lead us away from normal because normal is not what we need to accomplish anything effective in that moment when we're under threat. God built this in us. Out of his creative thoughtfulness, he engineered you and me to shift gears when we are in danger. It's what we call fight or flight. Right? Usually these days when you read about fight or flight, it's something that it's like we, we treat it like it's a piece of brokenness, like creation's brokenness, that we have to keep it away. No, that's a gift, friends. It's a gift. Now, we're not supposed to live in it, right? If you imagine pulling down a fire alarm, that is your emergency response system. That's fire. But you don't just hold it down forever, right? That'll make you sick. But God built us with this creative ability to overcome danger, It's a gift. I'm fascinated with the physiology of danger management. I just know that without it, we're not going to make it very far in this world. You wouldn't even be able to change lanes on I-40 or negotiate a really difficult crisis. We need to shift gears occasionally. We see David doing that right here. I mean, think about all the things that happen whenever you see danger. You get a bad phone call. Something bad is happening right in front of your eyes. God has made your body to where your vision changes. You lose peripheral vision. The way you filter input is totally different. Blood flow changes from parts of your body to other parts of your body. Processes in your body shut down to kind of free up RAM for your your body's ability to overcome danger. That's why your, your digestive system stops whenever you're intensely stressed out over something that's going on. Your immune system shuts down. Uh, protein synthesis in some areas shuts down, so you don't grow hair, you don't grow nails. These are things that happen so that you can overcome danger. Here's what's interesting about fight or flight. It does something else to us as well. It deactivates our thoughtful and rested creative processes that give forth things like joy, happiness, thankful worship. Those are harder to do under affliction. Harder to do when there's pain and trial. I mean, when destruction is before us, we don't think in poetic words or laugh easily, do we? We don't smile even. We're not innovative. We're not creative. We don't give thanks. Worship comes difficultly. When afflictions come, our most natural tendency is to focus on the problem with a laser-like intensity until the problem just goes away. We just hold our breath and just hang on for dear life. We need the dark clouds to leave before we can enjoy the Lord, before we could give thanks, before we can bless him. Some of you are here today. This is where you're at. It's not like you see problems coming. It's definitely not in your rearview mirror. You're in the middle of them, right in the middle. You can't even take your eyes off of it. You wake up, you think about it. It's why you can't sleep. It's what you think about when you're not thinking about anything. You walked in here with them. Enjoying Jesus, that's packed away for another day. It feels like it's miles away, right? That's something to do whenever the problem is worked out. So look back at the psalm. Look at verse 17 with me again. David says, When the righteous cry for help, the Lord hears and delivers them out of all their troubles. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers them out of them all. He keeps all his bones. Not one of them is broken. 
Such an interesting piece of the passage here. What I do like is that he mentions broken hearts and crushed spirits, which is just an ancient way of talking about mental health, emotional and mental health, which is really on the front of mind of society right now. I mean, I just look, just a cursory look, which was interesting to me, but search engine trending shows that just the term mental health has doubled in under three years. It's something that we kind of used to hear about, and now teenagers talk about it. It's like it's nothing. Mental health is front of mind for everybody. So I see a gospel opportunity as we have tried everything as a society from marijuana edibles to meditation apps. There is an incursion point for the gospel to those under heavy affliction because the gospel is a story that says to everybody, come, come to me, Christ says, if you're weary, heavy laden, broken hearted, stressed out, lonely, sad, crushed in spirit. He says, I will give you rest. And here, God says we'll be delivered out of every affliction. Is that hard to swallow? Every affliction? All afflictions? Being re- I mean, you, some of you have some scar tissue from an affliction that it doesn't feel like you got rescued from? And he even says, even without a broken bone. Even without a broken bone. Now he's, he's not speaking physically. We've all broken bones in here, right? You broken toes just from trying to get across the house without using your flashlight on your cell phone. You kick something, right? Everybody's broken bones. It's not talking about literal bones right here. This is an ancient way of saying complete protection or complete preservation. That's what it's talking about. But how can this be? I mean, do you feel completely preserved? I mean, when people battle cancer and depression all the way up until the day of death, is that complete protection? Because that's what it says here. The answer is, is the gospel is also a story of complete protection. It's where we are completely protected even from death itself. If you're not delivered from your afflictions here on this landscape of earth, you will be if you're in Christ whenever you leave this life. If you are in Christ, you will carry no failed piece of creation with you. None. No bum knees. No, no need for contact lenses or a broken heart. No stinging regret. No cancer. No Alzheimer's. That will not be your forever situation any more than the tomb was Jesus' forever situation. It will not be. And I understand that this is a small consolation for a lot of people today, but if you meditate on that and you start to feel and get your arms around the truth that this life that we live is a vapor, it's a wisp, and then it's gone, then it helps us see what it means to be completely protected. Paul actually talks about this in Romans 8. Stay where you're at. Romans 8, 18. I'm just going to read this to you. Paul says, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing to the glory that is to be revealed to us. See, this is how he's thinking right here when he reads this. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. Why? Because it's under affliction. Creation itself is under affliction. He goes on to say this, for we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. 
And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. It's fascinating. E even creation sits under this affliction. No broken bones. No broken bones. We will be completely protected, completely preserved, today or in forever. But no broken bones is also the story of the cross. Some of you caught this, and some of you probably already knew this. If, if you're unfamiliar with this part of how it touches the cross, it's very simple. The Romans, who invented what crucifixion was, in order to speed it up, they would break the legs of the criminals. What you could do if you're crucified is you could use your legs to kind of push your body up, and it'll allow you to inspire. You could breathe. But if you had no ability to do that, you would sink down in your frame, and you would slowly suffocate. So in order to speed the process up, they would break the legs of the criminals, okay? This is how we see this in the Bible, just so you know I'm not making it up. John 19, verse 31, it says, The Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and of the other who had been crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. Jesus actually fulfills the psalm in this very moment. This is just one of the over 300 moments in the Old Testament that elude or point to Christ in the gospel. Over 300 moments in the Old Testament. This is just one of them. But Jesus, though he was brutalized, was also completely protected at the same time. Completely protected. And now he leads a family who will also be completely protected. And what I appreciate so much about the gospel story is Christ did not wait for the clouds to move before he blessed God. I mean, he's fully God, but he's fully man. I mean, sometimes I think we push the needle closer to deity than humanity. Jesus was God, as much God as the Father and the Holy Spirit, but he was just as much human as you are. He was fully human. And yet all the words coming out of his mouth were pleasing to God at all times, even from the cross. And so today you and I are in the shape of Jesus, formed, modeled after the person of Jesus. We tackle various afflictions where they tackle us, and we bless God at all times. But how do we apply this I mean, really, I mean, because it just sounds, this sounds like stuff a pastor's supposed to say, right? <laughs> as I, just as I read it out, it sounds like, what else am I going to say? But how do we really tighten the screws on this and work it into our lives? And for that, James is going to help us. And I'm convinced, I can't prove this, but I'm going to ask him in heaven. I'm convinced James was firmly with, with uh, Psalm 34 in his eyes when he wrote this in James 1, 2 through 5. I know he knew about Psalm 34, but I think he really resourced it well here. It says this, James says this, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without approach, and it will be given. Okay, this is going to get us a step closer, this passage right here, right? And, and what James is saying is that trials, afflictions, 
Okay, what they're, what they're going to do is they're going to test our trust in the Lord, test our faith in the Lord, and the product it builds is steadfastness, which isn't really a word we use very much anymore, right? But we all kind of intuit what it means. We just don't use it. It just means endurance. Endurance to not waver. Endurance to hold on to joy no matter what. And this is how it works. This is the mechanics behind that. Endurance or steadfastness. That's cumulatively bought over time by increasing load. Run a few miles today, stay with it, you'll run a few dozen next year. That's endurance. We build it. It stacks, right? It grows over time. It's bankable. Afflictions also behave in this way. They build us to do what? Endure, be steadfast, hold on to joy in the middle of affliction. And I mean, you've seen this in people too. You've seen people that they, they slam into a wall. You could label what, whatever you want on that wall. It could be poverty, it could be cancer, it could be loneliness, whatever, unemployment. And they have no ability to stand. Bitter with their words, bitter with their posture. They build their own refuge in their shelters. They don't bless the Lord at all. They don't have any joy in the Lord. They retreat with a hard heart, complaints replace blessing, no endurance is built, and they're gonna be unable to contend with heavier afflictions down the line. Their ceiling's not moving. They're not building any endurance. You've seen the opposite too though, haven't you? People who are brilliant under excruciating trials as if they had a superpower. And in fact, they do, right? I mean, the Holy Spirit does that very thing by coming in and empowering us to do something we just can't do. And also cooperating and working alongside the fact that we've built up some endurance. You've seen people that you could tell by watching how they handle their words, their Lord, their family, that they've marched through some fields before. You can see it. Steadfastness has been the product of it. And it brings glory to God. It brings glory to God. Now listen, they might not be happy about their situation. They might actually be downright sad, but they're not letting go of joy, right? And joy, as we've looked at in the past, is not the same thing as happiness. Happiness is just connected to the temperature of the room. Joy is something you can carry anywhere you go. It's a resounding contentment satisfaction in the Lord at all times. You see, this is why we count it joy when trials come. To just look back at what James says, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. That makes no sense. It makes no sense if you don't understand that we count it as joy because God is glorified on our lives in increasing measure as our endurance grows. As our afflictions are handled differently as we grow, God is glorified in a greater capacity because we're not wavering. We're blessing him with every word at all times. We look more like Christ. See, when our endurance grows, God is much fully on display. You, you, you know, if you see somebody, just to put it in an example, you see someone blow an ACL out, like a knee injury, right? Some athlete or something. You don't even have to be an athlete, right? I mean, if you're over 40, all you have to do is this. <laughs> and you could, blow, you could blow an ACL. But when you see somebody do that and they're limping around the house or they're on one of those dumb scooters and they're giving all of their, their money to the physical therapist, it's a total, it totally changes their life. But when you see their disposition, they're not happy about the scooter. 
They're, not, they're, they're a little sad they can't run and play like they used to. But when you sense that they just enjoy Jesus, you sense this steadfastness, a word we don't really use but we all kind of know. You sense it in them, it glorifies God. It glorifies God. But what if that same person had a cancer diagnosis that was just so far, so far past, there's really not much they can do, and they still carry themselves that same way? Does it glorify the Lord more or less? More. How do they get there? Steadfastness being grown, affliction by affliction, as they just refuse to let go of joy. Refused. Bless the Lord at all times. Just remember, we're most satisfied and content in God when he is most glorified in our lives. It's not a one-sided relationship. I mean, when God is most reflected in his grandeur is where we find ourselves most joyful in this world. So when we bless the Lord at all times, even in concentration camps and in hospice and in unemployment line, even in those moments, we have the freedom to say, God, I'm sad. I'm sad. I don't like this. It hurts, but you are good. And I'm not destroyed. In fact, I'm completely protected. Completely preserved. Not one bone will enter forever broken. You will preserve me thoroughly. It's like, it's like what Job said through thick tears. The Lord gives and the Lord takes away. And how does it end? Blessed be the name of the Lord. Bless the Lord at all times. You know, Job would say several chapters later, though he slay me, yet I will trust him. Though he slay me, yet I will trust him. He's doing it again, blessing his name at all times. Even though God might crush me to the ground, I have faith and he is trustworthy and he is worthy of my worship. That's what he's saying. And, and listen, if, you, if you're a student of Job, and if you're not, that's fine. That, that phrase right there, pieces of Job's life, but particularly this phrase is what we see some call a proto-Jesus or a, um, an echo of Jesus or a type of Jesus because Christ would come along and he wouldn't just get all the way to the very skin of death. Jesus would find death and it would be his life that would say, though he slay me, yet I will trust him. So how do we know that this is occurring in us? How do we know that we're growing in a steadfast nature? How do we know that we're growing in endurance? I'm going to go back and say it simply by what's coming out of our mouth. I'm, I, I've said this in several Thanksgivings. I think the last five Thanksgivings in a row, I've chosen to talk about grumbling because it's the opposite of Thanksgiving. Get it? But it's, it's a, the reason I'm such an expert on grumbling is because I'm so good at it. I mean, I grumble all the time. And when I catch myself grumbling or complaining, I see the ceiling. I see that ceiling. I'm not growing in my endurance. I'm lacking. Where is God in this moment? So it tells you by what's coming out of your mouth how you're growing here. Whether you, like me sometimes, will say behavior, blessing. That's what we do when we complain, right? But God, isn't that how it always starts? But God, I mean, look what I'm doing. Look what I'm not doing. And this, now, this. But what else is coming out of your mouth? What about petitioning for wisdom? That's a good sign of growth in this. Whenever you find some affliction, just to say, Lord, what does this mean? Is this an attack from the enemy? 
Or did I do this to myself? (laughs) I'm not quite sure. And I don't even know what forward looks like. Do I fast? Do I pray? Do I take the hit? Do I fight back? Do I get some help on this? I don't even know what, heads or tails, I don't know what to do with this. That's asking for wisdom. What does James say? Ask for wisdom if you're lacking and he'll give it to you. He'll give it to you. Even how to distinguish what kind of suffering you have. Also, we can petition for rescue. That should also be coming out of our mouth. God, save me. God, save me. It's a lot better than just saving yourself. But when you ask God to rescue you from your affliction, ask him, or think rather, what am I asking him to rescue me from? If you're suffering because he removed an idol away from you, and you're calling out for rescue, he's not going to give you the idol back, right? That wouldn't be rescue. Sometimes we need to be rescued from the idol that was pulled out of our life. For that, too, we need wisdom. But you're going to know that steadfastness is being built in your life when there becomes to be a fluency and blessing and thanksgiving in the middle of the affliction, in the midst of it. When you have your own psalm, when you have your own lyrics to your own song that came from pain, it was full of trust at the same time. And that, friends, is countercultural to joyfully savor the goodness of God in the midst of pain. I mean, the whole world watches that in amazement. It's so indicting to them, they'll actually mock you for it. I mean, this is what Ted Turner did. He was unable to deal with this. You know the statement that he's most famous for? It's not the one I read to you. It's the statement that Christianity is for losers. That's his most famous quote. Christianity is for losers. I think he's right. I think he's right. The Christian life is a life baptized into death humiliation, and the afflictions of Christ. The Christian faith baptizes a person into pain before there's a resurrection of Christ. Christians are called to lose. We gain more. We just lose this world. We gain so much more. But in our loss, we count it a joy. And when we count it a joy, we are reflecting more of God's glory as we find Jesus is the good above all other goods. I mean, in the story of David, if you were to keep reading about David in First and Second Samuel, he lost so much, but he really didn't lose anything at all. And if you're a Christian with me today, you and I, we have so many broken bones, don't we? And yet we're completely protected at the very same time. Right? So there's a lot for us to repent for. As we, as we square our shoulders with Psalm 34, and even in preparing this, just, just repenting repeatedly how sometimes I can naturally just throw a contract before the Lord. But I've been, but Lord, let's be honest now. <laughs> I mean, I have it. Listen now. I've been doing good, right? I mean, not as good as I can. I get it. You know, you start reasoning. You're negotiating with the Lord. I can do that. If you're doing that with me, we've got to repent for that. Aren't you glad that we do not have a contract? I mean, he he is giving us what we don't deserve. And he's not giving us what we do deserve. That's not contractual at all. And then maybe the second thing that we can carry with us as we repent is blessing God only after happy endings. Just waiting for the happy ending before we bless him. And I think that's probably going to find most everyone in the room. Right, And listen, if you're here or maybe you're watching online and you would say you are not a Christian, Christianity might be something you struggle with 
Maybe you're not antagonistic. I mean, if you're watching online and you've made it this far, I would assume you're not antagonistic. But you don't really know what to do with this. I just want to remind you Christ's words to come all who are weary and crushed and broken and heavy and oppressed and tired and his arms are big. His arms are big and you will find rest. And he delivers all who call out, everyone. And he's not far from us. And you're going to lose a ton of this world and you're not going to lose anything at all at the very same time.